The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. Tonight we want to go back to the 14th chapter uh, of Mark. We are have been on the series in the book of Mark for quite some time. This, I believe, is the 41st message that I've preached out of the book of Mark. By way of general review, just remember that we believe that Mark wrote this gospel as it was dictated to him by Peter. That's what the early church believed, at least, and, and there's some evidence to support that. Regardless, it's the inspired Word of God. There is no doubt that it is indeed word for word what God wanted Mark to write. And we followed the life of Jesus. We've gone from the, from his, the beginning of his ministry, the very first statement in the, in the scripture, in the Gospel of Mark. It says it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It lays out the premise, it lays out the argument from the outset. And we followed the ministry of Jesus. We followed it from the beginning when John baptized him to the time where he would heal this one or he would, uh, he would um, raise this other one from the dead and he would feed thousands that otherwise would have no food. He did these miracles. We followed him through all of this. We followed him as he called disciples, as he called those that weren't callable in that day. People like Levi, people like who became Matthew, people like Peter, who was too passionate really to be a, uh, a disciple. He was always speaking up. He was always being uh, loud when he should have been silent. And, and he, you know, you have all of these that came together. And now we're following him as he takes steps ever more closely to Golgotha, to Calvary. This morning we looked at him being taken in the garden. He was taken as a thief. He who was the way, the truth, and the life was taken as a thief. He was abandoned by his friends, and he was taken to the highest religious authorities in the land, a place where you would hope you would get the most compassion. In fact, we read about that in Hebrews, that uh, the summation by the writer of Hebrews of the high priest's role was to have compassion. He could have compassion because he himself was compassed with infirmities. But we read here about the priests and the chief priests and those that were, uh, that were looking for reasons to pervert, even to perverting justice in order to bring him to his death, to tear him down. I'd hate to know I was going before a judge that already had a bias against me. In fact, that's grounds in our society for what we call recusal. The judge has to recuse from a case where he has a bias against the defendant. But in this case, the judges, there were some of the judges in the crowd that came to get him. And when they brought him before the chief priests, these, the highest religious authorities in the land, indeed the highest religious authorities in the world, because this is the place God had set his favor upon. And given them the truth, the, the true way of worship, the true way of, uh, of justice, they brought him up to an illegal trial and they came to an illegal sentence of death. But they didn't have the power to sentence him to death. So, so they had to do something else. They, 
They began to spit on him. They began to buffet him. They began to mock him. And in chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we find that they start the process of co-opting the civil authorities into bringing him to his death. Notice it says, And straightway in the morning the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council and bound Jesus and carried him away and delivered him to Pilate. So now we see him before the chief magistrates of the land. And Pilate is one of those chief magistrates. He had authority, he had jurisdiction in the lower part of Judea, which included, which included Jerusalem. And, and Pilate, we see his interaction here. Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. In other words, that's what you're saying, and you're correct in what you say. <laughs> The chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate answered him, asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. Now, we don't get the complete story here. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with Mark. That just means that Mark... In talking to Peter, God only inspired Peter to tell him part of the story about what had happened here. But if you turn with me over to the book of Luke, the 22nd chapter, we read a little bit more about what's going on. And in the, uh, I'm sorry, the 23rd, uh, 23rd chapter, in the 23rd chapter, in beginning in verse 1, we find that, that this multitude, I'm not going to read it word for word, but you can read it as we go along, this multitude took them, these chief priests and scribes, took Jesus to Pilate, and the accusation that they made against him was the one accusation they knew that would make Pilate's ears perk up. We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now, you've got to know a little bit about the Romans in order to understand how big a deal this was. The Romans had... In most cases, they didn't care when they, when they conquered a people whether that people completely converted to their religion. You know, some of the, some of the uh, uh, great uh, uh, kings that, that set out to create empires, they wanted to convert the people in every way, culture and everything. The Romans didn't care, and that's one reason they were so successful. If they came into Alabama and the Romans conquered Alabama, they wouldn't mind if we kept our legislature. They wouldn't mind if we kept our practices. They kept our mule day and gordo. They would, they'd be fine with that. The only thing they would require is that you also give tribute to Caesar. You pay your taxes, and in most cases, you had to also set up an idol to Caesar, and you had to worship the, the emperor. Now, in the Jews' case, they made an exception. They realized that the Jews were a special case. They didn't believe in worshiping anybody but Jehovah God, so they kind of they let them slide just a little bit in the way that they worship. But if you ever found a Jew or anybody else that was trying to, uh, to encourage insurrection, that was the biggest no-no there was. Uh, you're forbidding them to pay taxes. You were, you were trying to... Tell them, hey, I'm, I'm your new king, not Caesar. You can only, you can only serve me. Because see, what had happened in the past, and without going into too much detail, the Maccabean revolt back in the, about, 160 to, about 165 B.C., 164 I think is when they actually, uh, uh, actually won, the Maccabees had taken charge of, of Israel. 
And it was not until they, they pretty much ruled Israel as an independent state. Uh, they were priests. They were Israelites. And, and Israel was pretty much independent, certainly from the Syrians and from the, the remnants of the Alexandrian Empire. And they became, uh, but they became vassals to, uh, uh, to Rome through Pompey the Great. Pompey, who was a, a, a co-conspirator with Caesar. Uh, Pompey came in and they, and they submitted themselves unto him because of some problems within the land. And from that moment forward, they completely lost their independence. But they were allowed to keep doing mostly what they were doing. But if ever someone came up and said that they were uh, causing problems, that's, that's the problem Barabbas had. And we're going to see him in a minute. Barabbas was fomenting insurrection. He was trying to start a revolution. And they accused Jesus of the same thing. But you remember, he says that he was forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. But don't you remember what we just talked about a few weeks ago? When they brought the coin to him and said, said uh, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? They were trying to trap him there. But he, he, made the, he gave them the best answer they could possibly give. He said, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's, but give to God what's God's. He never said that. These are false charges. You remember the false charge we read about this morning where he said he's going to tear this particular man-made temple down. He never said that. He said destroy this temple, speaking of the temple of his body, and I'll raise it again in three days. And he did that. We're going to see he's going to do that. But they came to Pilate, and the only thing they knew that would get Pilate stirred up was some kind of traitorous activity against Caesar. And so Pilate asked him here and said, Art thou the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, Thou sayest it. That's what they say. That's what you say. Jesus was a very wise uh, witness. He, he didn't say anything that would stir up the authorities. You know why, you know why he could do that and, and, and it not be a problem? You say, well, he was playing politics. No, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Jesus wasn't interested in politics. His kingdom wasn't of this world. Do you understand that the kingdom that Jesus Christ is king over is absolutely no threat to any political system in this world? It's no threat. There's no, Jesus is not trying to institute some kind of earthly political system. Now, it may be a threat to a corrupt system because he'll, he'll be teaching the people involved in it to do right and not to be corrupt. <laughs> But when it comes to Caesar here, he was no threat. He was not here to, to set up a kingdom to rival Caesar because his kingdom here was going to be a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that, uh, that, would, that would, not have, it would not be of this world. And he tells Pilate that. And even before the chief magistrate of that era, of that area, I should say, Pilate said to the chief priest in verse 4, and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Now, now shouldn't that have been the end of the story? <laughs> isn't that where it ends? When it says not, when the verdict says not guilty, the defendant goes home, right? I find no fault in this man. But further evidence that the trial of Jesus was corrupt is the fact that he did not go home at this time. This was a political prosecution in the sense that Pilate, as we're going to see, as we read in Mark in a little bit, that he was willing to content the people. 
I'm going to come back to that, but let me just remind us all. If your primary goal in life is to make people happy, you're going to have problems. Apparently, that was Pilate's primary goal. Listen, I don't like to make people mad. I want to do everything I can to, 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 to content you, to make you, to, to make you comfortable. But, but do you know the truth doesn't always make us comfortable? The gospel certainly comforts the afflicted, but the gospel also afflicts the comfortable. <laughs> it stirs us up sometimes. So notice as he continues to, he, he thinks it's over, but they were the more fierce, it says still in Luke chapter 23. He stirreth up the people, teaching throughout all Jewry, beginning in Galilee to this place. And, and there was another key word that, that Pilate uh, heard. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked whether the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged unto Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who himself was at, also was at Jerusalem at that time. Now, you've got to also remember, as I said, Pilate was the procurator of Rome. He was a Roman who had been appointed to rule over Jerusalem and the southern part of Judah. But another thing the Romans would do is they would set up these little puppet kingdoms as well and, and Herod here was one of their puppet kings he had been set up over the northern area of Judea which included Galilee and the place where Jesus was had grown up and so uh, so there was a he had jurisdiction there so being the good politician that he was Pilate Pilate said hey I'm gonna kind of get him off my back and I'm gonna kick him over there to somebody else <laughs> So he sent him to Herod. He sent him to Herod. So this is the, these are two chief magistrates, Pilate in the southern part, Herod in the northern part. And notice in verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceeding glad. You remember Herod who wanted to see, he wanted to see John, and then he, he, he ended up having John um, executed, and then uh, he'd heard about Jesus, but, but he, you're going to see he was excited because he had heard many things about him and hoped to see some miracle. You know, i got to say to you, if you're coming to church hoping to see some miracle, if you're coming to church to see a show, you don't need to be coming to this church, okay? <laughs> now, you may say that, boy, that, that Brother Chris is a character. I don't know. Maybe, you know, I may be one of those peculiar people, Brother Mackey, that he's talking about. But, but if, my job is, if my job is not to put on a show, the church's job is not to put on a show. Hey, last night was a beautiful show and it was it was a, it was absolutely appropriate it was a beautiful wedding it was beautiful decorations it was a a a, a time of uh, uh of worship really in some ways but it was also a time for uh, for some music and and some celebration but listen church is not a party church is not a show church you don't need to leave here tonight thinking that you've been to some entertainment facility you know I love to watch a movie. I love to go to a ball game. But you don't need to leave here thinking you've been to a ball game. You don't need to leave here thinking you've been to a concert. I love to go to concerts. But, but I'm not here to entertain you. We're not here to entertain one another. We're here to fellowship. We're here to preach the gospel. We're here to worship God. We're here to sing His praises. We're here to pray to Him. It's a very simple proposition. Very simple. Herod, though, is like most people in the denominational world today. He was looking for a show. And then he questioned him, but Jesus answered him nothing. 
In verse 10, the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, and Herod with his men of war set him at naught and mocked him and arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him again to Pilate. Let me just say this to you, young folks particularly. Very often, when you don't give the world the answer that they're looking for, they will set you at naught. They will set you at naught. They will mock you. They will categorize you. They will pigeonhole you. They will abandon you. They will send you away. If that happens, rest assured you're in good company because they did the same thing to Jesus. You know, many people, when they find out we're primitive Baptists, first of all, they don't know what that means. And secondly, when they find out what it does mean, they think it's, uh, they think it's something, a matter of ridicule. <laughs> Those old primitive Baptists. They ask, y'all handle snakes in your church? And turns out Brother Buddy does. But uh, that's another story. <laughs> Sorry, Brother Buddy, I had to go there. Uh, they, they ask crazy questions, dumb questions about what are you? What, how do you? You know, what is a primitive Baptist? What do we do here? You know, the best evangelism you'll ever, <laughs> you'll ever come across, you'll ever, the best evangelism you'll ever do is to tell people, hey, come and see. Come and see. Because what we do is we preach the truth. We sing the truth. We pray the truth. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Now look, we don't get it right all the time. We don't get every, every time I'm here, I'm not in the right spirit. Brother Buddy and I were talking about that before services. About He was telling me about a time recently where he was so excited to be at church, so excited about coming to church, and I know, I get that. I know what he's talking about. But, you know, there are other times when he and I are not excited to come to church. There are times when I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, now, when I get here, I'm always blessed, Brother Mackey. I'm always excited to be here. I'm always thankful that I came. But sometimes it's a chore to get up and to be here. Sometimes it's like, okay, Lord, I've got to go to church. But praise God, there are those times like Brother Buddy's talking about when I'm excited about it too. But it's not always that way. We don't always get it right. We're not always, you know, I misspeak sometimes. I say things I shouldn't. I say things in ways that I shouldn't say them. But I'll tell you, beloved, there's no place else I'd rather be. I'm not a very complicated guy. I can't handle very complicated things. And praise God, the worship of God, the true worship of God is not a very complicated matter. Many, many of our preachers today, many pastors today out in the denominational world are more like CEOs of corporations. They've got their assistant pastors and they've got their assistant pastor for music and assistant pastor for uh, for the sports program, an assistant pastor for this, an assistant pastor for that. Beloved, I wouldn't, want to, I wouldn't know what to do with an assistant pastor. I got Brother Buddy here to help me. He's my assistant. 
Brother John Morgan, when I can call on them, but, but we don't have any formal roles like that. We just, I'm, I am your pastor by the grace of God, by your toleration. <laughs> you know, I believe the Lord has called me to be this. I believe that you believe that. I believe, and I believe that the Lord has blessed us together as a church. But I'll tell you, beloved, it's, if it was more complicated than this, I couldn't handle it, Brother Mackey. I couldn't balance it all. But praise God, it's simple. But when people see that sometimes, they will reject you. They will send you away. They will mock you and set you at naught. But rest assured, you're in good company because that's what Herod did to Jesus. And I want you to notice something else in verse 12, still in Luke chapter 23. And the same day, Pilate and Herod were made friends together. For they were before at enmity between themselves. Now, I get this. There was a time when I was in college when I got into, into a discussion with two, two good friends of mine who were at odds with each other. They were not happy with each other. They'd been, they used to be friends, and they fell out, and they were no longer friends. And for some reason, we were all three together. We started talking about the doctrines of grace, started talking about church, started talking about salvation. And before it was over, Brother Buddy, they had made up and were both against me. <laughs> you, you ever had that experience? That's exactly what happened here. They were enemies. Pilate and Herod were enemies. Now, let me just hasten to say these two friends of mine, I believe with all my heart, are children of God. Good, good, still good friends of mine today. But, but the truth will unite people against you. The truth will unite people together. It will unite believers. But it will also unite non-believers against you. That's what happened here. And going back now to Mark, I, I want you to, whew, there's so much here, y'all. I don't even know if I'll finish tonight. Remember where we are. So Jesus is being taken to Calvary. He was taken in the garden. Now he's been taken to the authorities. He's gone from Pilate to Herod, and now he's gone back to Pilate. And in the 15th chapter of Mark, when you get to verse 6, in between verse 5 and 6 is where he was sent to Herod. But notice in verse 6, he's been sent back to Pilate. And he says, Now at that feast, he, that is Pilate, released unto them one prisoner, whomsoever they desired. And there was one named Barabbas, which lay bound with them that had made insurrection with him, who had committed murder at the insurrection. Now get this picture, beloved. You've got Jesus Christ on the one hand, whom the chief priests hate, who stirred up false witnesses, who has done no wrong. He's never lied to anybody. He's never cheated against anybody. He's never told anybody to break the law. He even advised them to pay their taxes. He told them to be loyal to Caesar to the, way, to the point that they could. He's never fomented insurrection. He's never tried to raise up an army. And he's certainly never committed murder. In fact, he's done the opposite. He's raised people from the dead. And over here, you got old Barabbas. Barabbas, who had started a, started a revolution or tried to and while he was in the process of doing that, he murdered somebody. Doesn't say just one somebody either. I don't know how many, but he killed at least one person, but likely more. 
And here we have the option, the choice between Jesus and Barabbas. And the multitude crying aloud began to desire him to do as he had ever done unto them. I can see Pilate in his mind thinking, well, this man doesn't have any faults and this man is a murderer. I'm sure they're going to pick this man. I think Pilate probably thought this was a good way out. And Pilate answered them, will, you, will ye that I release unto you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had delivered him from envy. By the way, if you're a judge or if you carry the judicial power of the state with you, and you know that somebody has been falsely accused, you have a duty to release that person. You have a God-breathed duty. In the book of Leviticus, we're to, you're to do no injustice. You're to do righteous judgment. That's according to every law that's ever been. He knew that. He should have released him. But, but notice that it says the chief priests that highest religious authority moved the people that he should rather release Barabbas unto them. And by the way, the word Barabbas means son of the father. Isn't that interesting? Son of a father, son of the father. Bar-Abbas. And so Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will ye then that I shall do unto him whom ye call the king of the Jews? If you don't want me to release him, you want me to release Barabbas, what do you want me to do with him? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And then Pilate said unto them, Why, what evil hath he done? And they cried out, The more exceedingly crucify him. And here we get to the saddest part, I suppose, of Pilate's character. It says, Pilate, Willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus, whom he had scourged him, when he had scourged him to be crucified. You know, I've heard this message preached before about Barabbas. And I just always have been struck by the fact that Barabbas is us. Barabbas is us. Barabbas deserved to die. Barabbas had committed sins and crimes that were worthy of death. Barabbas was bound and had no way out. Barabbas was headed to crucifixion. Barabbas was absolutely, if there was anybody in the, in the land of Judah in that day that was going to be hanged on a cross, it was going to be Barabbas. He was bound with those who had committed insurrection. He wasn't just any old person he he had a band of followers this is the very kind of person that Pilate was worried about this is the kind of person that the authorities in Rome were cared about they didn't care if you were a teacher they didn't care if you taught something that went against what the Jews believed they cared though if you were trying to raise up an army to go against Caesar that's exactly what Barabbas was doing Barabbas wasn't just neutral. Barabbas wasn't just some poor patsy over here that they got off the street. Beloved, he was a criminal. Beloved, I am Barabbas. You are Barabbas. See, you're not just neutral. You're not born innocent. You're not uh, corruptible, beloved. You are corrupt. You're not leaning toward criminality because of your upbringing you're born a criminal and your 
enmity is against not the Roman state, not the, not the United States, but against the, the whole state of the good creation that God is, has given to us. You are in an enmity against God. I am Barabbas. And notice that what happened is the one who went about doing good, the man who had done all things well, the man who knew no sin, took the place of the man who was a sinner. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> doesn't that sound like our case? Pilate had him scourged and sent to be crucified. And then we see him taken to the soldiers. In verse 16, the soldiers led him away into the hall, called Praetorium, and they called together the whole band. You know, beloved, the wicked always want somebody else involved. This was a prized prisoner. This was somebody, they said, we're going to have fun with this guy. Don't be surprised if your en enemies grow in number. Don't be surprised if you come up with one person against you and suddenly there are ten people against you. Here the soldiers led him away, and they didn't just say, well, the three or four of us will handle it and the rest of us will do something else. No, they called the whole man together. And notice what they did. They clothed him with purple and planted a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And that doesn't mean they were worshipping him in spirit and truth. It means they were fake worshipping him. They were mock-worshipping him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. I want you to notice about that crown of thorns right quick. I find that very ironic and also very appropriate seeing what Jesus was there to do. You remember where thorns came from? They weren't in the original creation. You go back to Genesis, the third chapter, and you'll read about the fact that after the fall of Adam, God said thorns and thistles are going to come up now. Before that time, in Eden, man was at peace with himself. He was at peace with God, and he was at peace with the creation. Creation was at peace with man. <laughs> And at peace with itself, there was no crime, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there was no aging, there was no killing. The animals all ate of the plant life and not their neighbors. There was no war. There would have been the most boring National Geographic Channel shows back then. <laughs> Look at the plant growing up, see the lion, eat the plant, you know. Nothing like what we see now when the antelope is being chased down by the leopard and the lion, you know. That didn't exist back then. But you see, Adam dragged creation down with him, with him. When Adam sinned, the whole, that's why the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together till now. Because of what Adam, you want to blame it, it's not global warming. It's not some tectonic plate that's shifting. I mean, I know that's the immediate cause. I realize that the atmospheric conditions are the immediate cause of the hurricanes that destroy places. But the real reason, the primary cause, was a day in the beauty of Eden when Eve was deceived and Adam was not. And they ate of that fruit and plunged the whole creation into sin. The corn plant did not ask to share its row with the thorn. 
the tomatoes did not ask to share their area with the briars and the, and the weeds. In that day, Brother Oliver would have had an easy time raising anything. Wouldn't have even had to plant it. He could have just walked out and taken them. But nowadays, he has to work. He had to work all of his life to plant that great big garden. All because of sin. And the thorns in particular came in because of sin. And it was the thorns that were the part of the curse, according to Genesis 3, verse 18. But then we read in Galatians 3, 13, that Jesus Christ was made a curse for us. He was made a curse for us, and He died to remove the curse from us. And He felt the pain and the smart of the curse through the thorns that were pressed down on His head. And these weren't little briars and stickers. They were long, uh, horribly uh, jagged and pointed things that would hurt. And you know, over in Psalm 133, I believe it is, it says how, how sweet and pleasant it is for... Let me just turn there and read it. He says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments. Think about that picture of that precious ointment. Why did they do all these these weird rituals in the Old Testament, it seems to us. It was because they were pointing us to something. Beloved, what do you think happened when the crown of thorns was pressed down upon the head of Jesus? The blood came flowing out. A scalp wound is one of the most bloody wounds there is. You'll bleed more from a scalp wound than just about anywhere else. And that blood, like the oil, was coming down Jesus' face, coming down across His beard, running down upon the skirts of His garments. There was a, there was a real symbolism there. Over in the Song of Solomon, the fifth chapter, and the uh, second verse, it says, uh, well, in the first verse, the, 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 the type of Christ, the, the, the man who is the type of Christ says, I'm coming into my garden, my sister, my spouse. I've gathered my myrrh with my spice. I've eaten my honeycomb with my honey. He's talking about the milk and the wine. And then he says in verse, in, in verse 2, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 the woman here that he's, he's coming, to, coming to see, says, I sleep, but my heart waketh. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh, saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew, and my locks with the drops of the night. Beloved, I don't know all the symbolism that's included there, but I believe that is pointing us toward the crown of thorns, the dew that's on his head, the dew that's running down the locks of his hair. The blood was running down the locks of Jesus' hair. The blood was running down his face into his eyes upon his body and the skirts of his garments. Jesus was being bathed with blood by the the thorns that were pressed down upon his head. But praise God, Jesus bathed the thorns with his blood. He took away the curse. He purchased the redemption of creation. Now, don't get me wrong, not yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm not preaching some kind of pre-cross redemption, but I'm telling you the symbolism is there, Brother Mackey. And then we read how they mocked him and how they smote him and how they spit upon him. So we've seen him taken in the garden. We've seen him taken to the authorities. And as we bring this to a close tonight, I want you to go with me just a few steps farther as Jesus is taken to Golgotha. He's taken to Golgotha. 
In verse 20, Mark 15, it says, When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. The hour's come, you see. The hour is here. The hour had not been here. He had gotten away so many times, but now the hour is here. And notice as they go to Golgotha, look at verse 21. They compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. In one place, in one of the Gospels, it tells us that he stumbled in carrying that great piece of wood that was going to be his cross. What a, what a verse. Now, I don't know, by the way, let me just point out to you that in the 16th chapter of Romans, Romans 16 and verse 13, there's a man named Rufus mentioned as a friend of Paul. I don't know if it's the same Rufus. I don't know if it's a different one, but, but boy, isn't that ironic if it happened to be the little boy who is going along with his father there in Jerusalem, and his father is compelled to come by and to help Jesus carry the cross. Now, there's much to see here in this verse, beloved. I want you to think about this very, very seriously. Jesus couldn't even carry the piece of wood. He was so weak. He couldn't physically hold up under the weight of a tree that he made. A tree that he made. He who upholds the world, the whole world, by the word of his power, had to have help to bear the cross made of wood from a tree that he created. Now, I can't even fathom the omniscience of God. I, I don't know how he can know everything, but I know he does. And I know this. I know that one day, maybe 20 or 30 years, maybe 130 years before this day, there was a seed fell to the ground somewhere in Judea. And from that seed sprouted a tree. And God saw it all. God knew it all. God knew exactly where the tree was. He knew exactly where the seed came from. And he saw that tree grow all those many decades. And he knew all along that this was the tree that his son would be nailed to. And his son bore that tree till he could bear it no more, physically no more. This is the Lord of glory we're talking about. He could have said, he could have said to the tree, tree, get up and walk. <laughs> he could have told the tree to be destroyed. He could have, God himself could have reached down and yanked the tree by its roots out of the ground and said, I'll have no such tree that my son will have to be nailed to. And yet, do we see yet where Jesus is flagging in his determination? We don't see any place where he is tempted to turn back. I'm sure he was tempted, but he never succumbed to it. We don't see any place where Jesus says anything that would negate his desire to carry out the will of his Father. 
He who upholds the whole world by the word of his power fell down beneath the load of a tree that he created. In verse 22 says, They bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. I can't even begin. I told you this morning, I, I give you this disclaimer. I can't describe this scene for you in ways that would do it justice. But as I try to think about it in my mind, I think about the Lord as he stumbles along that path because he's weak. I think about him as weak physically. I think about him as Simon takes the tree from him. And I think about the view he must have had as his feet touched the ground at the foot of Golgotha's hill. And he looks up at that dark, dreaded place, a place that's so dreaded by all that know it that they call it the place of a skull. That's not the place where children play. That's not the place where families picnic. That's a place where death abides. What would it have smelled like? What would it have felt like? What would it have looked like as he got to the foot of that hill? This is the point where I would have been wanting them to give me something to deaden the pain. This is the point where I would have wanted the anesthesiologist to come on the scene and to help me to be able to deal with this with some kind of drug, some kind of deadening substance. But look at this last verse we're going to deal with tonight. Verse 23, And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh. That's, that's the deadening agent. That's what they gave condemned prisoners. That's the thing they gave them to, to drink that would help deaden their senses and make it a little more tolerable. But I want you to notice what happened when they gave it to Jesus. But he received it not. He received it not. I don't know why he wouldn't take it. Why wouldn't anybody take it? Well, I do know why he didn't take it. In Psalm 75, we read about a cup in the hand of the Lord. And we're told the wine is red. It's full of mixture, and he poureth out of the same. But the dregs thereof, the dregs thereof, the very last little drop of it, the wicked, all the wicked of the earth shall wring them out and drink them. You know what he's saying to us there? He's saying to us that the wicked of the earth are going to drink to the dregs, the wrath of God. There's not going to be any um, pardon. There's not going to be any relief. The wicked of the earth, and that's all the wicked. And beloved, you know what that means? That's all of us. Because all of us are wicked. Every single one of us. So all the wicked of the earth are going to drink the wrath of God to the dregs. There's going to be no relief. There's not going to be no pardon. Jesus is not, they're not going to get any deadening agent. They're going to have to drink it to the dregs. And you know something else? That if Jesus did not die for you, you will have to drink it. But praise God, he was counted with the wicked. He was counted with the transgressors. 
He was counted as one of us because He died for us. And He was counted as one of these wicked that was going to drink it to the dregs. Praise God. He didn't want any deadening agent. He wanted to do the whole will of God. He intended to do everything that was necessary. He set His face like a flint we saw this morning. And He was going to drink the wrath of God to the dregs for those of us that were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world because we were in that wicked number. But because he loved us, he was counted wicked. He wasn't wicked. He wasn't sin in himself, but he became sin for us. And now we're at the footsteps of Calvary. And we're about to see what's going to happen. We're about to see him crucified. It's going to be painful. It's going to be terrible. It's so, it's so bad, and we'll, we'll talk about this next time. But it's so bad. This form of punishment was so bad that they had to invent a word to describe it. The word excruciating. That's a word that was invented to describe the pain and suffering that someone who was crucified would endure. And it is going to be excruciating for the Lord Jesus Christ. But praise God. He set his face like a flint and he drank to the dregs the wrath of God for you and me and for every single one of his children. He put away the sin. Not by speaking. You know, he spoke creation into existence. But he had to roll up his sleeve. He had to get to work. He had to drink to the dregs the wrath of God in order to save us from our sins. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.